Thank you, Grant. Well, good morning, Redeemer. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn them to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. And if you, if you forgot your uh, communion elements, uh, please feel free during the service to run back to the deacon's table, and they'll get that to you. Psalm 127. A song of ascent of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build, build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with him. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Amen. Pray with me. Father, what a beautiful song. And um, it doesn't just apply to the work of building. It applies to all of life. That unless you empower my preaching, our hearing, then we're here in vain. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do just that that you would take the work of my hands and my heart and my mind and that you would take the sacrifices of your people and the energy that they have uh, expended to be here this morning and that you would partner with us and that you would allow something beautiful and godly and something powerful to transpire during our time. Would you exalt Jesus and that would, would you... And build us up, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. In 2015-2016, the Golden State Warriors went on a tear in the NBA. At the end of the regular season, their record was 73 wins and 9 losses. Their winning percentage was almost 90%. They broke that record of most games won in a single season that was previously held by Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. They qualified for the playoffs quicker than any team had ever done in the history of the NBA. But the major difference between the 2015-2016 Golden State Warriors and the Chicago Bulls of 96 was that the Bulls went on to win the championship and not just break the record for most games won in a single season. Hindsight is always 20-20. Commentators look back and say, man, you need more than talent. You need more than grit. You need more than records. You need wisdom. Wisdom to win an NBA championship. You need wisdom. Hindsight tells us that they probably should have rested their starters. They could have lost the last five to seven games of that season and still had home court advantage the entire playoffs. And yet they won the battle and they lost the war. Wisdom. 
It's why you see players sitting out now towards the end of the season. It's why you see coaches monitoring wisdom, monitoring minutes. It's because they're applying wisdom to the game of basketball. Tim Keller and his wife, Kathy, wrote a book on wisdom, uh, on the Proverbs, and here is what they write about wisdom. One aspect of wisdom means the ability to notice distinctions and shades of difference where others can only see a blur. Kathy can, can see small but significant differences between ballet dancers that Tim can't perceive. And he can notice fine differences in the quality of a curveball that are lost on her. We are, as it were, wiser than each other in the fields of dance and sport. Well, biblical wisdom brings discernment to the skill of daily living of life itself. To be wise is to recognize multiple options and multiple outcomes where others can only imagine one or two. Think about the Golden State Warriors. Others could see multiple outcomes when, in fact, perhaps they only saw one. Let's get the record. What does all of this have to do with our psalm this morning? There are numerous types of of psalms in the Psalter. There are imprecatory psalms. There are psalms of thanksgiving. There are psalms that celebrate the law. There are messianic psalms that prefigure the Lord Jesus Christ. There are royal psalms. And then there are psalms of confidence. And yet something's peculiar about the one that we're in this week and the one next week. They're psalms of wisdom. And that's important. Because you have 14 psalms of ascent, 120 to 134. And right in the middle, Psalm 127 and Psalm 128, guess what type of psalms they are? They're wisdom psalms. It's as if the arranger of the psalms is saying to us, you will not make it home unless you find and cherish wisdom. The skill of living life on God's terms, the capacity to see multiple options when the world throws at you one or two, and these two psalms right in the middle of the Psalter, of the Psalms of Ascents, they're going to help us think about vocation and work and how we approach it, and they're going to also help us think about family and how we approach it. And isn't that important? Because we spend the bulk of our time at work and and in our families, and what the author of, of this psalm is saying, without wisdom, you will blow up your life with your work, and you will sabotage your family, and you will forfeit your way home. And so, Solomon is going to talk to us this morning about wisdom. Wisdom related to work that has implications for our families. The first thing I want us to think about this morning is wisdom's warning. Wisdom's warning. Now, if you notice the opening line here, it says that it's a a psalm of Solomon. And I take that at face value. One, because it says it. 
it's of Solomon. Two, because of some of the vocabulary in this song. You'll notice the word vain comes up three times. Those who build it labor in vain. The watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Where have we seen that idea? In another book that's written by Solomon. In Ecclesiastes, where he's unpacking vanity. And what you have here is that same theme, different word, but it's a synonym for the same idea that we can be engaged in things in life. And at the end of our lives, it's futile and it's useless. So that's one reason I think this is is of Solomon. But there there are three other themes that I think are important to orient this psalm towards Solomon. The first is the building of a house. You see it right there in in verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house. Now, house can mean a home that people live in. House in the Bible can also mean a dynasty of some sort, a human dynasty. But house can also mean the house of God. That's how it's used in Psalm 122 when when David says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of God. He was speaking about the tabernacle that would give way to the temple, but he was excited to go to not his house, but to God's house. And so I'm interpreting house in this psalm to not mean the house that Solomon lived in, to not necessarily mean an earthly dynasty, But I think Solomon is actually talking about those who built the house of God. And we know from the Bible that Solomon actually did that. David wanted to build God a house, and God says no. David's son, Solomon, says, my father couldn't, he had enemies, but I will. And so we see that that Solomon does actually build the house, and we learn that it took Solomon seven years to build the house of God. 1 Kings chapter 5. But Solomon did not stop with the house of God. 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 1, it says that Solomon built two other things that are important. He built his own house, and he built a wall around Jerusalem. And it took him 13 years to do those. And so think about it. We're talking about a 20-year construction project where Solomon beautified Jerusalem. The Bible actually says he hired 30,000 men to do construction, another 70,000 people to be burden bearers, another 80,000 people to cut stone. He sourced gold and and, and silver and cedar from all over the world that, that, that Solomon dedicated 20 years of his life to put Jerusalem on the map. And that's why you see the reference to gate and watchman in this song. Look at the reference to gate right there in verse 5. Speak with his enemies at the gate. Look at this idea of a watchman. Now, Now, why would those two ideas come up? Because Solomon built the wall that went around the city of Jerusalem, and there were 
gate, and there was a main gate, and there were also watchtowers where watchmen would climb into it 20 feet high, and they would be able to see far and wide all, and in all directions. And if there was a threat, the watchmen would burn fire at night, at night to, to, to let people know a threat is coming. And if it was during the day, they would light fire and smoke would rise. In other words, Solomon is perfectly suited to write this song. And when he got finished with Jerusalem, there was no city on earth like it. How do we know? In 2 Chronicles 9, this woman who's called the Queen of Sheba, perhaps Queen of Ethiopia, that she traveled all the way to Jerusalem. And this is what the Bible says about it. That she saw the wisdom of Solomon the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, the cupbearers, uh, his burnt offerings that he offered in the house of the Lord. And listen to this, and there was no more breath in her. She's a queen. And when she gets to Jerusalem, she is speechless. She can't breathe because of the 20-year construction project that Solomon has just done. It wasn't just his wisdom that was on display. It was how his wisdom resurfaced and changed the landscape of Jerusalem. Now, here's my question. If the queen of Sheba is breathless, when she goes and sees the beauty and the safety of Jerusalem, how do you think farmers who traveled to Jerusalem, how do you think they felt when they saw a wall and they saw the Palace of Solomon and they saw buildings and they saw the temple? They were mesmerized. And this isn't the only time we see it. You remember Mark 13? When Jesus walks into Jerusalem, what does one of his disciples say? Teacher, look at the temple and all of these buildings. Those are peasant, they are fishermen who are drawn into the mystique and the beauty and the safety that Jerusalem offers. So let us not make the mistake that when they traveled to Jerusalem, that they too were not breathless. And it is there, right, in that context, that Solomon drops this bomb on those who made it to Jerusalem. Those buildings were made with the best wood, the finest gold, and the best labor force on the planet. And that wall, it goes around the entire city, and we have watchmen standing in every single watchtower. But apart from God, this is useless. Apart from the safety that God provides, that wall is a paper-thin veneer that anyone can penetrate. 
You hear what he's saying? You see, what I think is going on here is they were mesmerized by the beauty. And it sent them in their hearts down this path of, I want this. I want to experience this in my own neck of the woods. I know what I'll do. Now that I see beauty, I see a wall, I see everything that is astonishing, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my neck of the woods, and I'm going to work. And I'm going to work, and I'm going to build my house that it looks like this, and I'm going to build my city that it looks like this. How else do you explain, verse 2, it is in vain that you rise early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Solomon is the most wisest human to ever walk the earth. He knows a human heart, and he knows what effect this city will have on them. It will resurrect covetousness. It will make them want their slice of the American dream and the American pie. It will make them want to put it in overdrive and get to their own lands and work themselves into the ground to build and to have what they see foreshadowed in Jerusalem. Look, y'all, the Bible is pro-work. Laziness is foolish. A man doesn't work, a man doesn't eat. But he may work and, and, and care for himself and share with those in need. Work is good. We image God when we do good work. But like all good things, virtues left to themselves will become vices. People used to take their cue from nature. When the sun went down, that triggered, I'm off of work. Now we have electricity, and we can turn the lights on. It used to be that you had face-to-face -face conversations, and then email was created. And at least when you used to answer email, you had to be in the office but now with these phones and devices, we're accessible 24 hours of the day. We were on vacation, and I can't tell you, it took me a week to not work. It took me a week to get my mind off of work. And words like dedicated, available, accessible have created this tension in the world where employers reward those people who have no boundaries and who have God-like capacities to work all the time. Just put so-and-so on it. They'll do it. And we, we heap these things on people and then expectations that people will always be working, that they start to mount. And then there's a culture shift in the world and biblical boundaries are pushed to the side. And here's what Solomon is saying. You can do all of this work and build all of these things and make all of this money and get all of these promotions and do every single thing for people and you can die and it will all be in vain. It's futile. 
No eternal weight in gravity. Look, the bread of anxious toil has filled many of our stomachs only to leave us hungry for something more substantive. And this is a foolish way to live. We live as if it all is resting on our shoulders. If I don't do this, if I don't do that, then everything will collapse. And thus we don't Sabbath, we don't rest, and it's destructive. And at first glance, look at verse 3. Like, I'm wrecking my brain, y'all. Like, why is this here? Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Like, why does he have to say, behold, let me drop a nugget on you. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Like, why does he have to say, how does that fit when he's talking about vain work? Here's how I think it fits. For those of us who eat the bread of anxious toil, our children who are gifts will end up feeling like barriers. We won't make time to disciple them. We won't make time to pray with them. We won't make time to shepherd their hearts. We'll give more energy around work than we are concerned about them worshiping. You see, what I think Solomon is doing for us is saying, when work becomes an idol, the people around you that you should be pouring into, you start to view them as getting in a way, and they're a nuisance, and you're irritable. And so what he's doing is reminding the person who's eating the bread of anxious toil, don't you forget this. And so I think, I think we do it, man. I think we can overwork. And our wives are tired of us always being on the phone. They're tired of caring for children and we're absent. They're tired of our mental space being occupied with vocation. And we don't have that same energy for the home. And I've pastored college students. And I've also seen women get off on this. Not just high-powered women in the corporate world, but college students who come to me, Pastor L, I'm pregnant. And I want to go to law school. And I want to be a doctor. And I don't think I want to keep this child. What's going on there? That child, which is a gift, is now being filtered through the wisdom of this world. And that child is now a barrier. I think men and women, if we're all really honest, we can wrestle with this. And we say we're grinding. We say, I got to make partner. 
We say, I got to get this degree. And we're hurting people around us. And inside, we're rotting. This is the wisdom of the world. It's going to present to you two options. Work, 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 work. Get over, get over, get over. And here's what Solomon's doing. He's inviting us to a third way, which is our second point. Wisdom's invitation. Solomon is giving us a better way. He's inviting us to live and carry out our work differently. And here are the three, these are colossal. Like, I think these three things that he's putting in this psalm, they are revolutionary to the degree that when we get this, that they take us off of the treadmill of life. And here they are. The first thing he says, human partnership with the divine. You, you got to write that down. Human partnership with the divine. Human safety under the divine. And the freedom to receive good gifts from the divine. Those are the three things that I think he is shifting our worldview. So, so first thing... What's this human partnership with the divine? He says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Notice he doesn't say labor or building is in vain. No, labor is good. Rather, he says, unless the Lord does the building, those who do it, do it in vain. He's not preaching let go and let God, and neither is he preaching leave God out of your work. He is preaching this partnership where we labor and God labors with us. We're not out there alone. It's the language of of, of Paul in 1 Corinthians. One man sows, another man reaps, but God gives the increase. It's the language of Paul in Colossians 1, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works in me. You think that just applies to pastors? No, it doesn't. We can do our work in the power of our God. It's the image of Old Testament warfare in Joshua 10. When one king forms this alliance with four other kings and the Lord comes to Joshua, don't fear them, for I have given them in your hands. Not a man of them shall stand this night. And it says, so Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched all night long. And as they fled before him, The Lord himself rained down stones upon them. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Do you see the partnership that is happening? Joshua marched all night. 
Joshua pursued them with the sword. But it was the Lord working above and with him so much so that more people were killed by God than by Joshua. What is Paul saying? What is Jesus saying in John chapter 4? I send you out to labor for that which you did not, I send you out to reap for that which you did not sow. Someone has gone on before you and has done work. What are they all saying, beloved? It's possible to do our work in partnership with him. You catch that? That we can actually partner with the Lord and he delights in it. We also have safety under the divine. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. That theme there is safety. Now, This isn't the first time we've seen this idea of watching. It's not obvious in our English Bibles, but in our Hebrew Bibles, it is. You remember Psalm 121, where it says, He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The word for keep is the same word for watches over in this city, in in this passage. Think about that. The Lord has already established himself as the ultimate keeper of Israel. And what Solomon is saying is, you really think those dudes who go into that watchtower and work third shift, you really think your safety is riding on them cats? I've worked third shift before, almost two years. And I can tell you, there were a plenty of nights where I went to sleep. On my lunch break, six minutes to get to my apartment, I took me a 48 minute nap and six minutes to get back. How many of you work and you can stay focused on your work 100% of the time with zero distractions? What Solomon is saying is there is only one person who doesn't slumber, who doesn't sleep, who doesn't fall asleep behind the wheel, who doesn't need rest, who doesn't get tired, who isn't distracted, and he's not in a watchtower. He's on his throne above. He is the ultimate watcher, watchman of Israel. And on one level, I think Solomon is talking about physical safety. I think he's really saying the Lord himself watches over. So Thursday of this week, I got into my car and my car was a wreck. My glove compartment was open and paper was just out. And I accused my son. I said, bro, what were you looking for in my car? And he was like, I ain't do that. And I asked my daughter, I said, babe, what happened? She said, no, dad, when I got in the car, it looked like this. And I said, what? So I pulled up our camera that looks right in our driveway. 
And at 2.49 a.m., three young men went in my car. And two of them, from looking at another neighbor's camera, had guns in their pockets. You imagine how I felt in that moment? Angry? Afraid at what could have happened? Rage? Felt violated? Then I felt thankful. Because the Lord was watching over me and my family as we slept. They didn't kick my door down. I didn't pay attention to my alert that I got on my phone. You think I did that? It's the Lord. It's the Lord watching over his people. And he does that. He does this. And I think on another level, this isn't just physical safety. I think he's also talking about the security, the absolute security that you and I have in Jesus. Do you know how beautiful it is to know that you're not keeping yourself in God's family? That no one can snatch you out of God's hand because no one is greater than God or Jesus? Solomon is, is, is causing us to see the world differently we have a true watchman who will always watch over and keep his people in life and in death. And so we're free. We're free that God is inviting us to live life this way in partnership with him under the safety that he provides. Look, there's this thing that I've seen on, 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 on people's walls, and it's a saying. Every day in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. And it knows it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be killed. And every morning a lion wakes up and it knows that it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. No matter which one you are, get up and get to running, right? That, that's the mantra of the saying. But that's a lousy way to live, isn't it? That every day I have to get up and I have to, it's either kill or be killed. And here is what Jesus is offering to his people. You can wake up as a lamb, not as a lion, not as a gazelle, but as a lamb who has a good shepherd who will lead you and walk with you and give you wisdom, give you strength, give you balance. See, I think we make this mistake. We separate the shepherding aspect of Jesus and we only limit it to salvation. And we don't actually believe that Jesus is our shepherd for our nine to five. He's with you mothers as you change diapers. 
He's with you as you go shoot photoshops. He's with you as you homeschool. He's with you as you sit across from clients. He's with you as you prepare depositions for the courtroom. He's with you when you go into someone's house and fix their plumbing. He's with you when you go into the classroom to teach. He's with you when you go and work on a university campus. He's with you when you go and work in government. You have a shepherd who is so committed to you that there is not one part of your day that is not holy, that he does not say, I'm with you. We can also enjoy good gifts from the divine. Scripture paints this picture that God is benevolent and kind. He gives good gifts to his people. You can't work for salvation. It's a gift. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he gave gifts to the church. You don't work for your spiritual gifts, and neither are you in competition with someone else who's gifted a different way. James says that every good gift comes from above, and here are two gifts that this psalm says that God gives his people. Look at verse 2. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Do you not know that God gives to his beloved sleep? Like sleep? Yes, sleep. We can snore at night. Our minds can be eased. We can click the off button on the treadmill. Only the per- and look, and I know people need sleeping medicine. I get it. And we need anxiety med- medication, and it's real. But Solomon is saying that, man, God can supernaturally give his people sleep. I don't know about y'all, man, but I sleep the worst when I forget who I am in Christ. But man, when I'm rehearsing the gospel to myself, it's like God sings a lullaby to my soul. And I hit my pillow, and I'm out. And God is holding me and giving me rest. You see, the person who understands that we don't get up and work by ourselves, but he's going to be there the next day to help us with our work. The person who understands that we are totally secure and safe, we can sleep when those things are real. The other gift in this passage, and notice it's the same language. He gives his beloved sleep. Look at verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage. Where? From the Lord. You get that? They're gifts. Blessed is the man who has a quiver full of them. I don't think he's prescribing that we have 15 kids, right? I think he's getting to this idea when we walk in wisdom, we start to view our children not as barriers, 
but as precious gifts given to us from his hand. And they are a priority to us. They are not a nuisance. It's why you'll never see me get angry over hearing a baby cry in this service. They, they matter. And they're important. And when we're walking in wisdom, we see it. So where are you? Which way do you live? If you're like me, I have to do a lot of repenting in this area. I think I'm working alone. I think I write and pastor alone. I'm afraid to make mistakes. At any moment, I feel like I'm going to blow the church up and people aren't going to be here. And I overwork at times. And I think we all do. And Jesus invites us, beloved, to come to him, to experience his grace and his forgiveness, and to go at it differently. Our last point, I'm going to make it very brief. Remember those kids that he talks about? Blessed is the man who has a quiver full of them. They're like an arrow. And what do you do with arrows, right? You sharpen them and you shoot them. You can't keep them in your house forever. It is good that they go out. It is good that they have been discipled and they are now messengers of truth. It is good that they learn independence. But they're also like boomerangs. In the sense that they come back. Now children, I don't care how old you are, I want you to hear this. As your parents invest in you, there's going to come a day when your dad is not going to be as strong and he's going to be weak and mom is going to be feeble. You know what God actually expects of you, children? That when you grow up, that you won't forget the people who have loved you. that you come back and you love them and you care for them. In that sense, children aren't just arrows. They're boomerangs. Which is why one of our commandments is honor your father and mother all the days of your life. Now, how do I know that is in this passage? Because Solomon is showing us his last point, wisdom's blessing. What's the blessing of wisdom? Look at verse 4, y'all. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Now, look at verse 5. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. One commentator says we have a contrast here. In verse 4, the man is young. In verse 5, the man is now old, and he is at the gate of the city, and enemies are rising against him. 
Here's what one scholar says about the gate in Israel. That it functioned as the center of the community. It was also the prime location for injustice and abuse and corruption, thus leading the prophet Amos to exhort those in the northern kingdom to establish justice at the gates. The psalmist explains that although the gate holds the potential for injustice and false accusations, the blessed man and his quiver full of children will thwart any forms of injustice or abuse attempted by the enemies. You get the image here that this man has had children and now he's an older man and they want to take his property or bring false charges against him. Well, guess what? He will thrive at the gate because those same kids he poured into as a child, they're going to show up. You're not going to treat my daddy that way. You're not going to treat my mommy that way. You will not take her retirement. You will not mistreat her. Why? Because those children, they're going to come back, and they're going to care. Isn't that a metaphor for how wisdom works? In the moment, raising children can be hard. In the moment, following Jesus can be hard. But aren't we trusting that wisdom has a blessing in the future? All will be well. Y'all know that Solomon was not the perfect son. He did exactly what should not be done. He tarnished his daddy's name. He divided the kingdom. But don't we trust in someone greater than Solomon? Jesus is the perfect son, y'all who vindicates the Father's name, and if you're in him, he's going to vindicate yours. When we stand before him, through the muck and mire of this life and all the mistakes and all the ways that we've gotten this wrong, he's going to stand up and say, they're mine and they're loved. And I will vindicate. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and we love you. And Father, I pray for those who are at work alone and who are on the treadmill of life, that today would be a day where you offer them rest. I pray for those like myself, Lord, who need to examine my heart with respect to work. I pray, Lord, that we can learn to labor in your might and your strength. And Father, I pray over our children, as Grant so beautifully did, that they will feel cared for and loved and nurtured in their homes, and they will even see what you are calling them into in Christ. Would you bless our time as we turn our hearts towards the table? We love you. Amen.